Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. Okay, welcome to Intelligent Talk. The website is intelligenttalk.com. We're very pleased to have Mr. Rogue Best on. He is the brother of the so-called fifth Beatle, Peter Best. He also has a lot more connections even besides his brother. Amazing amount of connections to the Beatles. He also has a museum in Liverpool, the Magical Beatles Museum, which is wonderful, which I saw as well. So, Rogue, thank you so much for coming on the program today. Absolute pleasure, Ralph. Thank you. So I just want to get into, um, first talk about the Beatles and discuss your museum and discuss, it wasn't, when I researched this program and I saw all the connections that you had, your, uh, it's your half-brother who was Peter Best, who was a so-called fifth Beatle, correct? That's right, yeah. Pete was the uh, original drummer for the band. He was uh, um, an active Beatle, I like to say, an active Beatle from 1960 to 62. He played over um, over 1,000 shows and recorded 27 tracks as a Beatle. Wow, I didn't realize it that long. 1960 to 1960-62. But the connections go even beyond that. The Beatles really got their start at a club that your mother had in sort of the basement of what was, I guess, her house. Is that right, in Liverpool? Yeah, she, um, uh, our mother Mona Best, uh, she was, oh, Ralph, she was a real character, a real character. And um, she watched a program called the Two, um, sorry, the, a program called the Six Five Special, which was doing a special on the Two Eyes Coffee Bar in London. And she asked her husband at the time, Johnny Best, at the end of the program, because she was so intrigued if there was any rock and roll coffee bars in Liverpool. And uh, John at the time owned the Liverpool Boxing Stadium, which was right in the heart of the city. So he, he knew the city and said, no, he said, there's, there's nothing like that. And she said, well, we should do it. So uh, work began the next day, converting the cellars of the house into a rock and roll coffee bar. And what was the name of that uh, coffee bar again? Uh... Um, the Casbar Coffee Club. She watched a film. She got the name for the Casbar. She one of the she uh, she had two movie star idols. Ralph, one was a uh, one was John Wayne, and as our as our mother used to say, you know John Wayne because he's he's all man. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And the other and the other was a French actor called Charles Boyer, and he was in a film called Algiers, and he says to the love interest in the film. Um, I would like to take you to the Casbar. Oh. And, Mo, and most being the film went, that's it. That's what we're going to call the club. It's going to be the Casbar. And that's what, and I want to talk about that club in one second, but also your father, was was he the road manager or the manager before Epstein of the Beatles? Or what, what role did he play? Mr. Aspinall, I guess. Uh, well, uh, basically, uh, the, the, the Beatles' popularity had grown. The, you know, they were getting to, they needed to get to venues, but they were lacking a van and lacking a driver. So Peter came to my dad, to Neil, and said, um, hey, how do you, how do you fancy driving, driving the Beatles? He said, I'd love to do it, but I've got one problem. I haven't got a van. I've got no money to buy a van and I've got no means of raising money to, to buy a van. But if we can get past those, those little, <laughs> if we can get past those little problems, I'll drive the Beatles. And uh, so my mother, Mona, uh, bought my father a van. He became the Beatles roadie. He then became the road manager and he eventually became the managing director of Apple Corp. 
And when Epstein came in, then was that after him? I, I assume, or was that? Well, they they did they overlap at some point? Brian Epstein. Oh no, no, they were they were there at the same time. Brian uh, Brian came along uh, back end of sixty one. Um, so uh, no, my dad was there right through the whole time that Brian was there. It wasn't until around now there'll be Beatle fans here that goes, "Why doesn't he know this?" And you know what? They've got a point. I should know this, but it was about, well, I think, 69, and they'll be jumping up and down listening to this. No, it wasn't. It was around 69 that my father became the head of Apple Corps and started looking after the Beatles' business affairs. Until that point, he'd been their road manager. Okay, I just want to ask you about two more people. That I, that One of them is George Martin, who was a longtime producer of the Beatles, and he was... He was quite an important force in getting the Beatles discovered. Is that is that fair to say? Well, the, George Martin was the Beatles' last chance. I know it's it's hard for people to realize now, but uh, Brian had basically taken the Beatles to every record company in the UK, and it's been rejection after rejection after rejection. And um, George Martin, you know, uh, lucky for them, lucky for them, George Martin thought, no, there's there's, there's something here. There's something here with these lads. So it was George Martin that made the decision to sign them for, for Parlophone. And Parlophone, up to that point, Parlophone had basically only released records by um, comedians, Peter Sellers, uh, The Goons. Um, they hadn't really produced rock and roll bands. Oh, really? Wow. I, so, I love Peter Sellers. That's very interesting. Yeah, so it was, um, you know, George Martin was taking a jump into new terrain. That's interesting, okay. And one other person I wanted to ask you about is a, a man from Trinidad named, I guess, Lord Windermore. I may have the name correctly. Is he the one that drove them to, um, as I understand it, the truck to Hamburg, where they really helped hone their act? Oh, no, what happened? The guy's name was Lord Woodbine. Lord Woodbine. And that was a nickname. That was a nickname because... Um, there was a cig- there was a cigarette in the UK at the time. Woodbine cigarettes. I mean, these th- these things had no filter on them. They were so strong. If someone, gee, you know, it was like, hey, it was like smoking a heart attack. But Lord Woodbine used to smoke them literally one after another. Now, Lord Woodbine, as he was known, um, well, everyone knew him as Woody. Um, Woody used to play at the Jacaranda Club with his steel band. And uh, Alan Williams, the jack of the owner of the Jacaranda Club, came walking in one night, and Woody had gone, and so had the Steel Band. What had happened? A German sailor had come in and told them that they'd get more money playing out in Hamburg. So they just moonlighted to Hamburg. He disappeared, but he stayed in touch with Alan, and it was Woody who wrote to Alan and said, "Listen, this scene out here is wide open for rock and roll groups." Why don't you try and bring the rock and roll group out? And uh, and the group that Alan took out was the Beatles. So he's responsible for them really honing their skills in Hamburg. Yeah, it was Alan Williams that basically took them out took them out to Hamburg. It was his idea uh, when they first got there because you know this is a raw band. It's a new band. It's not as tight as it should be. You know. And uh, they played the Indra Club, which was owned by a, um, a promoter uh, called Bruno Koshmida. And Bruno Koshmida was so unimpressed with the Beatles, he told Alan Williams 
that it just wouldn't do, he would have to take them home with him. Okay. What Alan did, he didn't tell the Beatles this, and about four o'clock in the morning, he got in his little minibus and disappeared back to Liverpool. So Bruno's Koshmida was thinking the Beatles were going to be getting taken back to Liverpool. What he found was he'd been dumped with this Liverpool band. And then what Koshmida starts to do, and I'm sure you know, Ralph, where you hear these stories about Hamburg, Machau, Machau, which is basically make a show. When the Beatles were on stage, he'd be walking to the front of the stage, jumping up and down in front of them, arms waving around, make a show, make a show. And, uh, and they started to make a show. And with those long hours, eight hours a night, seven nights a week, you know, they became a force. And they became a force that changed the face of music as we know it. Absolutely. I've actually gone to Hamburg. I've seen some of those those venues. Just to discuss um, your brother, Pete, and the sad uh, when he was pushed out by the Beatles. As I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you'd know much more about it than I would, but I had read that George Martin, the producer, was the one who was the impetus and told Epstein that, that, that your brother had to go. Do you have any, and also, and ironically, I think your brother knew Ringo Starr, who replaced him. Do you have any color to add to that story or why he was pushed out or any explanation as to why that happened or who was behind it? Well, uh, you know, it wasn't as straightforward as that. I, I, I have my my own theory on it. And if you look at, not that, you know, the general public do, and I'm sure now at the internet they could, but if you look at recording sheets at EMI at that time and leading up to that time, none of the groups got to use their own drummer. EMI had three or four session drummers, and they were always brought in to play. It didn't matter who the group was, they were brought into play. So what George Martin said was basically, yeah, I'm listening, but we're going to bring in a session drummer. We're going to bring in Andy White. And my own theory on it, I think the boys panicked. I think they were thought they were going to lose their, their chance. They were very young. I think they misread it. Um, so um, they removed Pete from the group. They brought Ringo into the group. They took Ringo back to London with them. Ringo then played, and George Martin said, I'm going to use a session drummer. It didn't change a thing. And Andy White was still brought in to do the initial recordings. So, so can you explain to me why it didn't change a thing? Because, can you just explain that, that aspect again, please, uh, Rogue? Well, the aspect of it was that George Martin had made his mind up because that was EMI's norm that they used session drummers. So he was going to use Andy White to take Pete's place on the recording. The Beatles came back with Ringo um, and George Martin basically said, well, hey, you've changed your drummer. I'll listen to him, which he did. And then went, no, nothing's changed. We're going to be using Andy White. Interesting. Okay, um, your your brother did know Ringo Starr, correct? They had played together and had something. Yeah, 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 they were really good friends. Ringo's group prior to the Beatles, Roy Storm and the Hurricanes, used to play the Casbah uh, Coffee Club. They played there on a lot of occasions, and also when the Beatles and Roy Storm and the Hurricanes were in Hamburg uh, playing the Top Ten Club, they used to do an hour on, an hour off. So you'd have the Beatles for an hour. Roy stormed the hurricanes for an hour. Back to the 
did that, I mean, did, did this pretty much kill their friendship? Was there any contact after uh, the Beatles had taken off? And I know your brother went through some hard times, as, as anyone would, I read, having this happen to them. I mean, I guess over time you just adjust. And as I understand, he left music for a time, was even, a, I read a civil servant in Liverpool and then went back to music. Is that correct? Yeah, he, you know, he uh, he was he was devastated. You know, he's only a young man. He was devastated. And you've got to process how a young man would feel. He, you know, it wasn't just the dismissal from the Beatles. You're talking about a group of young men who lived in each other's pockets, and they're all pursuing the same dream. So um, he was devastated at first. Then he got an offer to join a group uh, called Lee Curtis and the All Stars. He played for them for a time. They got signed to Decca. Then uh, Pete and the group uh, left and became the Pete Best All-Stars. Then they became the Pete Best Four. Um, they also then signed to Decca. And then the group became the Pete Best Combo. And they signed to the USA, uh, U USA label Cameo Records. And they were out in America touring. And then the Musicians Union felt that there were too many English musicians in the USA and it wasn't being reciprocated by the UK. So uh, English musicians were being, well, not being started, they were getting asked to leave, to go back. So English uh, musicians were being sent back home to the UK. Um, basically, Pete was told he could stay if he wanted to play with American musicians but his group would have to go back home. And Pete felt he couldn't do that to them, that they basically worked with them through thick and thin, that it wouldn't be fair for these three boys to be sent back to the UK and for him to carry on in the USA. So he came back to England with them. But at that point, he felt that he'd been, you know, hammering away at that door. And he was married by this time. He had two young children. And that was when he said, it's time. I've got. I've got to turn to my family. I can't be trying to be a rock star, and they're suffering now because of it. I'm going to have to go and get a nine to five job and provide, and that's what he did. And, and when Epstein actually brought the brought the, I believe it was Epstein who did the actual firing. Correct. That is correct. Yeah. And did Epstein try to do it in any kind of a nice way? Did he sugarcoat it? Did any of the of the boys, as you say, try to? keep in contact with him or maintain any kind of a friendship? Was there any kind of a, a warmth to it afterwards, or was it pretty just brutal and that's the it? That's it. No, once the deal was done, it was done. Um, you know, from Pete's recollections, and I've heard him recollect it many times, um, he was called into Brian's office. He just thought it was a normal meeting because the way it used to work prior to Brian, Mo, Mo would do the phone bookings and Pete would have the diary with him and take any bookings that were given while they were at a venue. And there was this period where Brian didn't know what he was doing, so he was picking Mo's brains, and he was picking Pete's brains, asking Pete to come in. And Pete just thought, oh, I've been asked to come in. It's a normal brain-picking exercise. He got there. He said he realized straight away something was wrong, because Brian was pacing around. He was very hesitant. Um tie and top button undone which was something Brian never did and then uh, he just came out with it he said Pete I don't know how to tell you this the boys want you out and it's been arranged that Ringo, Ringo will start with them on Saturday mm. and, that, and that was it boom that's amazing uh, so Pete was out 
Uh, Brian did try to make amends. He contacted Pete a week or two later and asked him to come into the office, which Pete did. He said, I've got uh, an up-and-coming band uh, called the Mersey Beats. They're very good. Would you go on drums and shape the Mersey Beats into another Beatles? And Pete said, and what's going to happen to the Mersey Beats drummer? And Brian basically said, well, you'll be taking his place. So Pete basically went, so you're asking me to do something to someone that's just been done to me. And he said, Brian's just staring at him. And Pete went, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I can't do that. Interesting. And he, left, he left the meeting. Now, there was another person named Sutcliffe who later had a brain hemorrhage and died very young. W- where was he in that equation? Do you know, was he around when your brother was there? Um, yeah, well, the original, the original lineup of the Beatles was John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Stuart Sutcliffe, and Pete. Stuart Sutcliffe was on bass guitar, and Paul McCartney was on rhythm guitar at that time. Okay. And it was um, um, basically, whilst they were out in Hamburg, Stuart left the group, and Paul went on to bass guitar. Yeah, he died um, Died very sadly of a brain hemorrhage, and then Epstein died young too. Did, did Epstein kill, kill himself, if I recall? Um the, the manager? We don't know. Well, we don't know if he killed himself, but it was it was a drug overdose. I don't think it was something he did purposely. I don't think Brian had set out to kill himself. It was just taking drugs that had gone horribly wrong and losing his life was a consequence of that. And there were rumors that, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, that, that uh, Lennon had an affair with Epstein when they took a trip to Spain together. I think there was a film about that. And they, that they were very close. Do you, do you put any credence into that rumor? No, I don't think there's any credence in that rumor at all. And I spoke to Pete one time about this and went, and went what do you think of it? Now, Pete was in the group at that time, don't forget. And I said to Pete, what do you think of that? And Pete said, absolute nonsense. You know, I said, really, he said, absolute nonsense. He said, he said John didn't show any tendencies of that nature whatsoever. Okay, just one more question before I turn you to the museum. Is it fair to say that John, from my reading, was the one who sort of put together the group, that he got McCartney involved, for example, and sort of tested him, and he was kind of like the catalyst? And could could some people say he was really the, the person behind the Beatles uh, as they got started? Is that fair to say? Well, yeah, it, it, it was John's group in the beginning. I think it became, um, um, I think it became a collective at one point. And me personally, towards the end, I think it became Paul's group. Really? Why was that? Because Paul became, became the catalyst for the music? or? Um, I think Paul was just, towards the, the latter years, I think Paul was just putting more into the band, more effort into the band. Okay. Yeah, I think everyone else. And this is only my opinion, because I still know the guys. I've got a lot of time for all of them. I have no problem with any of them. But I just think at that point, Paul was putting more in. He was putting more effort in. He was pushing it along more than any other member at that point. I'll just ask you one more question to put you on the spot. It's a, it's a terrible question, but I can't help but asking, is there one of them who you thought was the most talented in terms of writing music, in terms of doing the music, in terms of just like, I mean, they were all obviously so talented, but is there any one of them which stands out in your mind, or is it not something you probably don't want to answer? Well, I think, you know, if a band has a guy who's a great songwriter, normally a band has one guy who's a great songwriter, 
yeah, the Beatles had two great songwriters, and the and what came of that is yes, the songs are Lennon and McCartney, but if you've got two great songwriters there, there's always going to be one upmanship. They're always going to be trying to better the co-writer, and what that resulted in was these amazing songs, this catalogue that people are still listening to today. You've got two songwriting geniuses who are really in competition. They might be a partnership, but they're in competition as well. Okay. I want to talk now about your, your museum. And what I've, I'll tell you, it's called the Magical Beatles Museum. It's in Liverpool. It's on Matthew Street, I believe. And it's near the Cavern Club, which was also a major venue for the Beatles, which I saw as well. Could you give us the website for, for your museum, please, Ro? Yeah, it's uh, MagicalBeatlesMuseum.com. MagicalBeatlesMuseum.com. And as I understand it, there were three different floors covering different periods, but it took you something like, as I read, 10 years to find this building and uh, really to find the right venue for it. It took you a long time to get this done. Is that right? Yeah, Ralph, I got close on a couple of occasions. I got close to one, uh, one building, then the guy pulled out at the last minute. I got close to another building. And then the guys who were backing me at that time um, uh, produced this ridiculous contract that they wanted me to sign where they would say where my collection was housed and they would control my collection. And I said, there's no way I'm doing that. So that deal collapsed the day before we were going to sign off on the building. Um, and then I got close to another building and um, I got gazumped. For those of you in the USA, means that someone just bid a lot more money than I could. And then I'd given up, and it was a chance meeting in a car park. I was walking back to my car, looking all forlorn, having just found out that I'd lost the building, having realized, Ralph, that there was absolutely nothing left on Matthew Street. Every building had gone. Matthew Street is the epicenter of Liverpool's nightlife and of its tourism. Uh, and I'm looking all forlorn, and I hear this voice shout across the car park, what's wrong with your face? Which is a scouse term for why are you looking so sad. I turned around, and it was a buddy of mine I hadn't seen in four years. So I told him, I said, I'm, I'm having to let go of a dream. He said, what's the dream? I told him what the dream was. He said, wow, he said, that's an amazing idea to be able to do that on Matthew Street. And I said, yeah, but all the buildings have gone. I said, so I've got to accept Accept my fate, it's not going to happen. And he went, I've just been offered a building. I said, are you serious? He said, yeah. He said, about 30 minutes ago. He said, got a phone call. I said, who else knows about it? He said, nobody. He said, I've literally been called 30 minutes ago. So I said, are you buying it? To which he said, well, I don't know. Are we buying it? And I stuck my hand out and said, it looks like we are. He phoned the gentleman. He phoned the gentleman concerned. We walked back to Matthew Street, went to the building, sat with him, um, agreed the deal on a handshake. Um, his only uh, request of me was, uh, very old school, um, sharp as taxi, 82 years old. And he said to me, you shook my hand. He said, that means something to me. So I said, well, it means something to me. He said, well, you shook my hand, so I don't expect you to back out of this deal. I said, well, while we're shaking the hands, I said, I have a request of you. And he said, what's that? I said, I don't want you to tell anybody this building's up for sale until the sale is done. He said, you've got my word. Yeah. So no one knew, no one knew I'd bought this building until 
piece. I was walking down Matthew Street with a little, you know, little spring in my step, and someone said, "You look very happy," and I said, "I am. <laughs> I've just bought that big warehouse." Well, I don't know many people that have started a museum. I know it, I'm sure it's a hard thing to do. What what I had read is that you had targeted 300,000 annual visitors, visitors, and you were on on target for that. And that number two, you have something like a thousand items in storage, and you display something like 300 of them. And a lot of these items came from your own personal connection with your mother or your father. And how much of these uh, collection came from your own family? And how much of it do you go out and purchase? Do you have any breakdown about that? Oh, not not a breakdown as such, but the the collection started in the in in the in the silliest way, um, i.e. the Casbah Coffee Club's original sign, um, which Coca Cola asked to buy back from me uh, a few years ago. I won't tell you the, the amount they offered for it, but a lot of people looked at me and went, "Are you insane?" Really? Um, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that that sign was basically face down in the driveway, and cement was being concrete was being mixed on the back of the sign, and the the sign was picked up and thrown in a in a dumpster. We call a dumpster a skip, but it was thrown in a dumpster. And I said to my mother, "Can I have that sign?" And she said, "What do you want with that old sign?" I said, "I want to put it on my bedroom wall." And she said, "Well, if you want to clean it up and put it on your bedroom wall, you can have it." So I pulled out the dumpster cleaned it all down. It was on my bedroom wall for years. And then on my mantelpiece in the bedroom was a, a trophy that if you look at the cover of Sergeant Pepper's album, there's a trophy on the floor by the feet. That was on my mantelpiece for years. Um, and then uh, the medals that John wears on the Sergeant Pepper album cover, they were our, my grandfather's medals. I used to wear them on the front of a denim jacket. Um, uh, I, I was stopped by my mother from wearing them because I saw one of the, the sashes climbing up a conquer tree. I was only about 14, 15. So there was all these things coming my way. And then, uh, and then I got the book. So I was starting to say to my mum, can I have that? Can I have that? Can I have those? Can I have that? Because I was the only one that was interested. She was going, yeah, go on. You can have it. You can have it. You can have it. Wow. And then I started, I started playing drums about 14, 15. Needed a drum kit. And uh, Pete was at the house and Mo said to Pete, I'm going to buy Rogue a, a drum kit. And Pete said to me, he said, well, come downstairs into the club. And I went downstairs into the club. He said, there you go. He said, there's a, a premier drum kit there called a Ludwig drum kit. He said, which one do you want? So I was standing there looking at them. And then he said, oh, it doesn't matter. He said, you can have both. So uh, so I ended up with both both of Pete's Beatle kits. The Premier is most probably the more famous one because the Ludwig one was only played by Pete the last four weeks of being a Beatle. Uh, so I ended up with the two uh, uh, Beatle drum kits. Um, again, asking Pete for things then. He was giving me things. Uh, a couple of things he said no to. I asked for his Beatles leather jackets. He said no. I asked for his... Uh, contract with Brian Epstein, he said no, uh, but otherwise he basically said you can have it, and then of course during this time, there was all this stuff poured in, into the house from 1960 to 68 from my father and my dad said um, when my mum passed, he said anything you find in the house that's mine is yours so I ended up with this huge collection, and then on top of that Ralph, I started collecting about 30 years ago in my own life. Well, that's amazing. You assemble all these items over many. I just have a, a, a final question for you as we wrap up here. You, you're, you're, you're obviously a keen observer of the Beatles. You're, you're part of the history in a number of ways. 
if you look back at the band and you look at the songs that they sang and what they represent, what does the Beatles, do you think, represent to you? And what do you think their lasting legacy is? Is, is it one of, of just love and happiness? Is it, is it one of just peace? Um, what do you think that most resonates when you think of the Beatles in terms of a, a legacy for people on the earth today? Um, well, basically, the Beatles, it's, it's, it's cultural history. They not only changed, you know, they were the first band to do a concept album, they were the first band to do stadium shows, they were the first band. They were just one step ahead all the time. You know, their creativity was just off the chart. I don't know if we'll ever see the likes again. Uh, me personally, am I happy that our family's interwoven into that tapestry? I most certainly am. It's a wonderful legacy to be part of. Um, it's brought wonderful things to my family, and it's brought wonderful things to Beatle fans all over the world. Yeah, it's it's a nice world to be part of. It, it certainly is. Well, Rogue Best, the brother of uh, Pete Best, the fifth Beatles, and the owner of the Magical Beatles Museum. It's magicalbeatlesmuseum.com, correct? That's correct, Ralph. In Liverpool, and which is wonderful. I urge everyone to go, and I had a great time visiting. And thank you so much for your time today, Rogue, and have a great rest of the day. Uh, thank you very much, Ralph. You have a good time, too. Thank great you. Be- great Beatles show. Thank you. Cheers. Bye, Bye now. Bye.